Well, welcome uh, to Rivers family and anyone else uh, that may be joining us uh, on uh, this uh, weekend's service. Um, I want to invite you now, if you would open in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to continue on in our journey through the gospel of Mark. Um, we took a one-off last week, as you know, uh, so we're picking up today where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, that passage from two weeks ago was Mark 12, 13 to 17, and we'll pick up in verse 18 uh, this morning. Mark uh, 11 and 12, both chapters, uh, packed with opponents, kind of this, uh, just this continuous revolving door of opponents coming to Jesus day after day in the temple, challenging him, and then Jesus challenging them back. Uh, if you remember, it's Holy Week. Uh, in Jerusalem, and Jesus is having all of these conversations and all of this engagement uh, with uh, people actually in the temple. And by his words and by his actions, uh, what's happening is the ending of the old covenant of law and the beginning of the new way of the new covenant of grace. Um, last uh, two weeks ago, it was the Herodians and the Pharisees coming as opponents to Jesus. They were religious and political oppressors, and their tactic was baiting Jesus to try to trap him in his words. Uh, our passage today, uh, there's a new group that kind of joined the party uh, in uh, offering some bait for Jesus again with the intention, because they're opponents of Jesus and his message, to bait him or to uh, trap him. Um, it's the first time this group called Sadducees, it's the first time that they show up in Mark's gospel. Uh, the group was a religious and a political sect like the Pharisees, but they were a distinct party uh, from the group of Pharisees. And what brought the Sadducees and the Pharisees together uh, was what was known as the Sanhedrin. So the question is, well, what is the Sanhedrin? Uh, it was an ancient Jewish court system. That's who the Sanhedrin was. It was the supreme religious rulership in the land of Israel. Uh, there was the great Sanhedrin in the great city of Jerusalem, but there was also smaller religious Sanhedrins in every town in Israel. You may remember the story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3. He was part of the Sanhedrin. And so uh, this group, this religious court system, uh, these rulers, these authorities, uh, made up of two parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were probably uh, more pragmatic uh, than the Pharisees were. And I think for us uh, in Western culture, I think we can probably actually relate more with where the Sadducees are coming from, just in terms of our culture, uh, than the Pharisees. And so I, I hope that we'll pay uh, close attention to what's happening in Jesus' interaction with this group of people in our passage today so that we uh, would not fall into some of the same pits that they have fallen into. So again, our passage is Mark 12. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27, and I have entitled the passage, uh, The God of the Living. So I want to I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to be making uh, four kind of specific points 
uh, in our time together and unpacking uh, this story uh, this morning. So uh, starting in verse 18, and the Sadducees came to Jesus again, came to Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, Holy Week. They're the next in line of being an opponent pressing into Jesus and his message. And they came to Jesus and the Sadducees uh, are those who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he died and left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, remember they don't believe in the resurrection, but they're asking Jesus about the resurrection. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, he says to this group of people who have concocted this grand scheme of some story that they've made up to press into Jesus to bait him. Jesus said to them, uh, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. doesn't say they will be angels in heaven. It'll say they'll, they will be like angels in heaven. There's this supernatural reality to the resurrection. Verse 26, and for, and for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You, you Sadducees are quite wrong. So he tells them on the front end, you are wrong. And here's where they're wrong. They're wrong. They, they don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the power of God. And then he tells them again, you are quite wrong. This is our Uh, passage for uh, this morning. I want to make again four points uh, with you as we uh, spend some time talking about this. The the first point is this, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Mark uh, makes that very clear in verse 18. This is a very important detail in this interaction with Jesus. Um, The Sadducees, uh, they embrace uh, only the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is Uh, The first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Sadducees only embrace those five books as binding in their belief system, and they have rejected the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus knows this. Um, And since the five books of the Uh, of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, never explicitly mentions the resurrection, Uh, they reject it. Uh, This is important context uh, for us in this 
um, in this passage because Jesus actually uses a quote. He's talking about Moses being up on Mount Sinai out of Exodus and God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. And he uses this quote from Exodus to refute them. And he says, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Isaac. And he's talking about Jacob. When the burning bush, when God was speaking those words to Moses on Mount Sinai, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all passed away physically from this earth. But he says in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to explain a little bit more on this in just a few minutes. Um, The point I want to make to begin with, it's not surprising uh, that people who don't believe in the supernatural, who don't believe in the resurrection, uh, are coming against Jesus in the temple Uh, because Jesus had already predicted his resurrection, his own resurrection, three times so far in the Gospel of Mark. So it's not surprising that they're pressing on Jesus looking to bait him, because Jesus has already said three times in this Gospel, I am going to rise again. Those three passages, if you want to write this down and look this up later, it's Mark 8.31, it's Mark 9.31, and it's Mark 10.34. They're so pragmatic Uh, the Sadducees. They're so um, against anything supernatural. Uh, I think for us, we could compare them to uh, naturalists or or humanists in the way they think about um, God, the way they think about life. Um, In philosophy, uh, naturalism is this idea or belief that only natural laws operate in the universe as opposed to supernatural uh, and spiritual laws operating as well as natural. Um, humanists reject the idea or belief in a supernatural being such as uh, the creator, uh, God himself. And so this means that uh, humanists uh, kind of can they 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 classify themselves. Uh, they could be agnostic, uh, or they could even be atheists. But they don't believe in any afterlife. Really, their their philosophy is just to have as much happiness as we can in this experience that we have in the natural realm. And so, Sadducees are naturalists. They they don't believe in the afterlife. And, and what they want to do in their theology is they want to create a kind of a religious buffet to suit their own taste. Uh, we, we will take what we like. We like the first five books, and then we are not going to take, we are going to reject the rest of the Word of God. And this kind of uh, relativism, I take what I want and I leave what I don't like, uh, this kind of uh, relativism is happening, has happening, has happened, is happening, I would say at alarming rates uh, in our culture, and I would also say it can, it can come into our churches as well, where we take what we want from the authority of Scripture, and we, and we just kind of don't pay attention to the things in Scripture that we don't really like, that press on us in a way that we don't really like. And so we need to be aware of this. This is what I meant earlier when I said their pragmatism uh, relates with us in terms of Western culture. Um, I wonder if you knew that there are uh, national organizations, national, or national and they are, they are naturalist 
humanistic organizations in our country, and they, they hold camps, like summer camps for kids. They go to these camps, and the whole purpose of these camps is to sway them against uh, any kind of faith system that is connected to a supernatural God. We need our church, uh, I, you, us, uh, the church, we need to be shrewd in this world. And we need to be a people who uh, trusts in the authority of God's word and stands uh, on the biblical authority, the, the scriptures uh, that God himself has given uh, to us. Uh, we would reject relativism uh, as a false philosophy, um, and we would embrace uh, that God has spoken supernaturally through his authoritative word so that we would come under his authority and find the rest and the peace and the hope and the direction and the counsel uh, that his word gives to us. And so I think an honest question that I would invite uh, you to consider as we work through this this morning uh, is this, do we, do, do I, do you, uh, do you come to the scriptures as an authority in your life? Uh, do you submit to it as an authority word in your life? Or do we come to it as some suggestions that uh, we can accept or reject, that we can pick and choose from based on what we like and what we don't like. Again, the Sadducees, they reject the resurrection. They only take the first five books of the Pentateuch. They reject everything else. First point. Uh, second point is this, the question that they pose. They're just the next group in line at the temple on this day, pressing, baiting, trying to trap Jesus. And they, they, they ask, it's this, um, just a gotcha type question that the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they had already tried. And Jesus had been refuting group after group after group. And so they come with this same kind of gotcha question. They're not interested in learning from Jesus. Um, they're interested in trapping him. And what they use, the bait that they use in this interaction is actually something from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, there was a provision that Moses had set up for, um, for uh, widows, uh, for single moms, for, um, to protect them, to provide for them so that they would be able to keep the inheritance in the family. It's not a, like a, it's not this weird patriarchal thing, but it was actually a provision that was intended to, to save, to literally save and take care of single and widowed women. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, that's some context about what, why Deuteronomy um, set that up, that provision that God had set up to provide and care for uh, the, the, the widowed. So that's, that's the biblical context that the Sadducees are using to bait and to trap Jesus. And so, and what they do as we read through it, it just got stranger and stranger as we read through their scenario that they come and talk to Jesus about is they're, they're stretching this protective provision into this contrived, exaggerated case study. They're using something from the law of Moses and they're stretching it 
and they're using it to contrive this really exaggerated scenario. Uh, and it was designed to ridicule belief in the resurrection because it created this scenario that seemed to be this chaotic thing in the resurrection. And so in some ways, it was them pointing a finger at um, Jesus's belief in his teaching on the resurrection because they create this chaotic scenario. Again, taking Deuteronomy 25, this protective, gracious provision, taking it way way out of context. And they're actually using scripture, hear this, they're using a story from Deuteronomy 25, they're using scripture as a weapon against the very one that wrote it, Jesus himself, the Lord and creator. And Jesus, uh, as he has been doing over and over and over again in the temple day after day, He dealt with hostile questions by not being on the defensive, but coming on the attack himself. In verse 24, he says, you are wrong or you are in error. And then in verse 27, he adds even more emphasis and he says, you are quite wrong or you are greatly mistaken. It's the same Greek word uh, that is translated uh, wrong or error in verse 24 and in 27. The little translation of the word is to lead astray. You are wrong. You are leading people astray. You are deceptive. You are a deceiver. Uh, You are causing people to wander from the truth. That is what Jesus is saying uh, to them as a response to this gotcha question. And then he gives them Uh, two very explicit ways that they are wrong, uh, that they are getting it all wrong. And here are the two explicit things he is saying. Here's where the Sadducees are wrong. Number one, they don't know the scripture. You don't know that you're using scripture in this like concocted story, this exaggerated story, but you don't know the scripture. And two, you don't know the power of God. Uh, the Sadducee, they knew some words. They knew a provision from Deuteronomy 25, but they didn't really know the word. You know what I mean? Like they knew some words, but they didn't know the scriptures. I remember uh, taking uh, French in high school. Uh, I don't know why I took French, but that's the foreign language that I took. Um, I was so serious about my faith. My French name was Christian, Christian. I thought that was very spiritual of me uh, in high school. I couldn't tell you today hardly anything. I could say oui, oui, which means yes, yes. Or I could say parlez-vous français, which just means do you speak French? And that's about, that's about, that's about all I got. I mean, I, I, and this class I memorized. There's no telling how many words I memorized in that French class. And I'll tell you this, I made an A in that class, but I never knew the language. I knew some words, I memorized some things, but I never knew the language. Uh, Maybe some of you guys grew up in a church tradition where you had something called Bible drill 
or Bible sword or something like that. And it's these competitions. I didn't grow up in a church like this, but I've heard people tell these stories where you stand in a line and the kids stand in a line and like the teacher calls out like a book of the Bible and a chapter and a verse. And it's like the first person that can get to it wins and they win medals and we celebrate them and, and you know where it is and we memorize these things. Um, and I'm not here to say like traversing the text and knowing where the text were where books are and chapters are, that's, that's important. And Bible memorization is important. It can be a good thing. But if you don't know it, if you memorize things, if you know some words but you don't know the word, it can be a dangerous thing. Um, you can even get some pats on the back for it, for how many words you know but not even knowing the word of God. If you... If you don't know it here, if you don't know it, uh, it won't transform you, and it can even possibly puff you up. Um, I think the Sadducees were puffed up here, and Jesus is putting them in their place. There is a difference between memorizing something and knowing it. There is a difference between knowing some words in the Scripture and knowing it. And these Sadducees, they didn't know the scriptures. So here, here's a word picture for you. Uh, let's say that you, you are at a seafood restaurant. You're on the, you're on the beach, maybe, uh, maybe in California, Pacific Ocean. You're at a seafood restaurant. And you're eating some crab legs. My friend Chris Simmons, he loves some crab legs. So let's just say Chris, let's say my buddy Chris and I are at uh, a, a great a restaurant and we're eating crab legs and then someone knows that that Chris and I are followers of Jesus and so they take them uh, on themselves and they come over to our table and their statement as Chris is gnawing on his crab legs uh, they say well the Bible says that you're not allowed to eat shellfish it's right here in Leviticus chapter 11. What, what would you say, if you're at that table, what would you say to that person? Uh, here's, here's what I would say. Uh, I would say, well, actually, actually the Bible uh, says that ancient Hebrew people, under the old Mosaic law, they weren't allowed to eat shellfish for uh, health reasons. There were dietary laws in place for their protection, uh, there were these, uh, Leviticus 11, there are very specific laws for very specific Hebrew people at a very specific time in Leviticus. And we are not under those specific laws today in the new covenant. That's what I would say. And just even as a side note, I probably would say, by the way, have you ever tried eating unrefrigerated shellfish? Uh, that will mess you up, man. That will mess you up. Regardless, here's my point. To hold a new covenant believer on this side of the cross of Calvary, the new covenant has come. The old way has been made obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, to hold a new covenant believer uh, to old covenant dietary laws means that you know some words, but that you don't know the scriptures. 
ripping things out of its historical context, not knowing the difference between the old covenant Mosaic law and the new covenant of the grace of Jesus. These kinds of things creates all kinds of confusion and all kinds of interpretive errors. And this is what Jesus is getting at with the Sadducees. And he says, you don't know the scriptures. And then secondly, you don't know the power of God. Again, the resurrection, supernatural reality was a no-go for Sadducees. There was no belief for them. They're naturalists uh, beyond what is seen and experienced in the natural. They were, uh, they were, they were very academic uh, they, and they were seeking to protect this position, this theological position, and this power that they had in the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is ruffling the whole thing. He is turning everything over. And so they're, they're pressing back to protect their position and their power. And they were wrong on this. They were dead wrong on this. The power of God is real, and they didn't know it. When I think... Um, is important for us to grab onto in this particular story is that the scriptures and the power of God, they are not mutually exclusive. Uh, the scriptures and the power of God are connected together. Both are supernatural. The word of God is powerful because it is the very words of God. The Word of God is alive and has power in our lives to transform us, to change us, to guide us along the way of Jesus because they are the very words of God. And so when you and I, when we, when we come to the Scripture at our gatherings as a church, when you sit down in your, in your office or your bedroom or on your front porch or in a park or by a riverside or wherever, and you sit down to read the Word of God— and study uh, scripture, uh, don't, don't make it just this only this academic experience and keep things in your head. We need to come to the scripture. It is supernatural. The word of God is powerful because it is supernatural. And so we want to, we need to read it through eyes of faith and read it with an, even an expectation of God's power being manifest. There's a, an old song that Mercy Me used to sing called Word of God Speak, like it is living and active. And there are supernatural stories and supernatural promises throughout the word that God has given to us. Uh, our our whole faith system, the whole, the whole faith system of Christianity is centered on Jesus's virgin birth and his physical resurrection from the dead. That's pretty supernatural stuff. And so when you and I, when we, when we come to the Bible, I'm encouraging you and exhorting you to come to it with an expectation of God's supernatural movement in your mind and heart and life, uh, to know the scriptures and to know the power of God in them. Here's just a few verses that I uh, pulled together connecting uh, the word of God with the power of God. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture, all Scripture, from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation, all Scripture has been God breathed. It is the breath of God, the very living words of God to us. They are alive. Uh, in a supernatural way, they are God-breathed. And these words, this word is youthful, is useful to teach us, to rebuke us by His kindness, to help center us on the way when we get off, to rebuke us, to correct and train us in righteousness so that the servant of God, which is what we are, we are disciples of Christ, we are servants of God, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Acts 4:33 with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all the word of God and the power of God. So let us not be like the Sadducees who didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. Let us lean in to know the scriptures and to experience the power of God in them. Uh, Our last point of our time together is this. Jesus is the resurrection. It's interesting that they, the Sadducees, they're talking about this resurrection concocted story. They're talking about resurrection with the resurrection, with Jesus himself. And Jesus, he corrects their biblical ignorance Uh, By bringing up this burning bush story on Mount Sinai, he brings up the the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And since this is what's interesting and I think important to connect here in terms of the context, uh, since the, uh, the word of the resurrection is not found in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of Moses, which, which is what they adhere to. That's what's binding for them. Uh, since that word's not in the Pentateuch, they assume that they have the biblical high ground in this conversation about the resurrection. But Jesus, again, what he does is he, he quotes to them Exodus, it's, it's verse three or chapter 3, verse 6. God speaks out of the bush, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. The scripture doesn't say I was their God when they were living on the earth. The voice of God that speaks from the bush says, I am their God right now. And then the very next verse is this in the passage, verse 27 God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. There's a huge point in this for us. Jesus appeals to the authority of Scripture to show them the power of God. They adhere to the Pentateuch, and so he's using a passage from the Pentateuch He's using an appealing description to show them the power of God. And he shrewdly uses the scripture that they already agree with. And just as a side note, if Jesus and his ministry stands on the authority of scripture, he is using the authority of scripture to engage culture, to engage his opponents. 
if he stands on the authority of Scripture to combat a falsehood, a false idea, a false belief about the resurrection, don't you think it would be wise for us to also stand on the authority of Scripture in our lives? So he, he corrects the Sadducees. They are wrong. They are dead wrong. They are badly mistaken. They are in error. They have mishandled the Word of God. They know some words, but they do not know the Scriptures, and they are mishandling the resurrection life. Uh, They should not compare the resurrection life to life here on earth, which which is honestly is easy to do. When we think of the resurrection life or we think of heaven, oftentimes we, we just think of the very best thing that earth has to offer. And we think that heaven is this utopia of the very best stuff that we experience here on earth. But the resurrection life does not mean a continuation of the best thing of life here on earth only longer. The resurrection life isn't the best idea we can come up with with our earthly life. The resurrection, the resurrected, are transformed into a radically new dimension of life that no one has ever experienced yet. In fact, Revelation teaches us in Revelation 21 that at the second coming of Jesus, there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth that's different than what heaven and earth is today. I want to just read one passage just to uh, help us uh, know how radically changed this is so that our understanding of what heaven is comes through the lens of Scripture and not what we can concoct up in our mind, which is what the Pharisees have done. But this is uh, Revelation uh, verse, or chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. This is what God has revealed to The Apostle John on the island of Patmos. Uh, We might even be journeying into Revelation after our Mark series. Don't hold me to that, but I am considering that and talking with the Lord about that. But here's here's, uh, Revelation 7, verses 9 and following. After this, I looked, and behold, there was this great multitude that no one could number. Like, literally, you couldn't even count it. That's not, that's different. That's... That's from an, that's that's supernatural. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We talked about this last week, this beautiful idea of unity and diversity and the creativity of God. They were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Everyone is so focused on the Lamb and His glory is going out to everyone and everything. And everyone is caught up in the glory and the goodness of God. 
Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This isn't something, this isn't earthly utopia. This is a revelation of something that, that we've never seen or tasted here on this side. And so the resurrection life needs to be informed through a supernatural lens and through the authority of the word of God that he has given to us. The belief and faith in the resurrection does not derive from what you and I can come up with in our finite brains and what you and I can try to prove naturally. Our faith in the resurrection is based on our faith in the Word of God and our faith in the power, the supernatural power of God in our lives. Think about the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11, Mary, Martha, Bethany, the town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem, uh, Lazarus, their brother, dear friends of Jesus. They send word to Jesus that Lazarus uh, had, had, had died, and it took Jesus, I think, three or four days to come down there. There's weeping. Martha, Mary, they're weeping. Jesus is weeping. Everybody's weeping. It's painful. It's, it's tragedy. It's, it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's sorrow. But Jesus offers this prophetic word of the resurrection into the pain, into the sorrow, into the tears. It's one of the eight I am statements in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the, res- I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, even though they physically die, they will live. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. It's an eternity of life. And then he looked at his friends and he said, Do you believe this? Do you have faith in my words that are so infused with the power, the supernatural power of God to resurrect life from the grave? God is the God of the living. Hallelujah. We serve the living God with a living hope. Yes and amen. Jesus walks away. He, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You are badly mistaken. He moves on. And with that, I just want to ask us this question in closing, uh, just practical theology for us. Uh, moving um, things maybe from our head uh, down into our heart and then even into our hands and our feet. How does this transform us? How does this um, change us? Uh, and I would pray for myself and for you and for our church with any of you listening that it would be this, that we would know the scriptures and that we would know the power of God, that we would believe this. Jesus said to Mary and Martha, do you believe this? That we would believe this. Culture, culture is screaming. Uh, there's so much noise. Uh, the world is loud and anxiety is loud. The unknown is loud. Everything just seems loud right now. And my exhortation and my encouragement 
to you, church family, is this. We need to find our center in Jesus and in his authoritative word. We need to find our strength and our hope and our peace and our mission as a church in the authoritative, powerful word of God. For you to find your rest there and your peace there and your hope there centered in Jesus and on his authoritative word. Again, Jesus quoted the Bible over and over and over again in his ministry. Following Jesus means knowing his word. And we must be people that are centered in Jesus and standing on his authoritative word in our lives. Or, or as Paul warns the church in Ephesus and Ephesians 4, we get tossed back and forth by the waves and we are blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. We must be centered in Jesus and we must find our strength in his word to us. Don't make it just about an academic exercise. His word is supernatural. It cuts to our hearts. It transforms us from this world so that you and I, we are more and more conformed to the very image of Jesus and to his way that he is calling us on. And I pray that we would come to the Bible with eyes of supernatural faith to see beyond the natural into the supernatural and that we would understand that we read the Bible, that we would know the scriptures and that we would understand and know that we read the Bible through the liberating lens of the new covenant. Know the scriptures. Know the scriptures. Know the power of God. Uh, As we pray i want to just uh, pray actually uh, just a passage of scripture over you so if you will join me now as we pray together i'm just going to pray this scripture over you over our church family from first peter uh, chapter one blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading and it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining for the outcome of your faith the very salvation of your souls. 
Lord, may this, may this supernatural, powerful word transform us, refresh us, liberate us, lead us in this mission of setting more captives free. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for uh, digging in uh, to God's word. Once again, uh, with me, I'm so thankful for the privilege it is to open God's Word with you uh, week after week. As we sing this last song, as you're stirred to come to the Lord's table in communion, as you're stirred to bring worship offerings, we invite you to do that uh, as we turn our hearts in worship and rejoice to the living hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.